This episode of Designed by Architectural Record is sponsored by Vitro Architectural Glass, continually advancing how buildings look and perform. According to recent studies, Vitro Glass, formerly PPG Glass, is one of the industry's most respected glass manufacturers and responsible for many of the industry's most specified products, including high-performance solar band solar control, low-E glasses, and Starfire Ultra Clear Glass. Explore products and request curated sample kits at vitroglazing.com. One more time, that's vitro, V-I-T-R-O, glazing.com. In some ways, that was more influential and probably a better education than going somewhere that had great buildings to look at because it made me examine who I was. There's something about putting yourself in an environment that you don't relate to at all that makes you really learn about yourself and makes you really acknowledge and observe and think about what other people are doing around you and sort of what makes them tick. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Designed, an architecture podcast. We appreciate you listening, and once you're finished, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and leave a comment. Enjoy the show, and have a wonderful day. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Designed with me, your host, Aaron Prenz. As always, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for listening to the podcast and all the reviews on the iTunes review section. It really just means so much, so thanks a lot. I'm also very excited today to announce our new website, designedpodcast.com. There you can listen to the podcast directly. It also links to your favorite listening apps, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. You can access them all now from one location. Again, that's designedpodcast.com. Go check it out and enjoy. And of course, be sure to check us out on Instagram at designed.podcast for everything we have coming up so you don't miss anything. This week's episode is Tammy Glass. She's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. She just has a really great story. She worked at Daimler Chrysler in Germany for a little bit, and she also worked in London. She just has such experience to share with you, and it's just a really great conversation. So I don't want to spoil anything, so sit back, relax, enjoy. Here we go with Tammy Glass. So your book is out now. It's called Prompt, Socially Engaging Objects and Environments. And I know a lot of your teaching here at the University of Texas as well. It also really focuses on behavior in the built environment and how spaces really impact how humans interact, one, with the space and Uh another with each other. So can you just kind of talk, take us through kind of what was the reason you wrote the book and what it's about and how you think that's going to impact architecture? Sure. So um, one of the first classes I started teaching was designing for human behavior. And it was not a class I ever sort of imagined that I would end up teaching. It really grew out of the interview that I had when I first applied to become an educator here at University of Texas. As I started teaching this class, it really opened my eyes to how much we have not really honored the human in our design process. We have classes that cover human factors. We think about anthropometrics. We, you know, we talk about clients. We we do acknowledge people, but we never really talk about the sensitivities of of humans in the built environment. And so designing for human behavior really sort of opened my eyes to helping me see my own process and how that could be translated into the studio. I also felt like a lot of the things that we discussed in designing for human behavior didn't really get picked up in design studios. That there was sort of, we design for people over here and then you know, we get down to business and start designing in the studio and that those things don't really merge in some way. So I wanted to really put together a set of case study precedents that would not be the ones that you would open up an architecture theory book and see. 
they would be, you know, some some obscure, some more well-known, but really framed more in what they do, how they engage people, how they somehow become more of a prompt for people, really kind of encouraging them to interact in a certain way in space. I don't think that that has been necessarily a focus in architectural education. And so for me, it was really, it grew out of teaching in this class. Well, there's also, I think, the rise of like the Google campus and these sort of open office environments where the millennials don't want to go and wear a tie and sit in their cubicle. And I also attribute it a lot to, I call it like the Instagram effect, where everybody wants to, I've dragged my wife to so many just buildings. <laughs> She's right. like, oh, great, we're going to another building. But I think if there's a, like, for example, the Seattle Public Library, there's the Red Room and there's something she can go in, she can take a cool photo, and it kind of provides something to the average person that is not of the architecture world. So how do you think this sort of, I guess the, the question is this rise in unique office spaces and also I think what I call like the resurgence of postmodernism, how do you think that's impacting design? Well, I mean, you mentioned the, the Instagram effect and that's a very interesting point because on one hand, it gets people to pay attention to architecture, pay attention to spaces. You know, museum curators deal with this a lot, like should we cater to that? Should we not cater to that? And in some ways, if you can create an Instagrammable moment and get people in and curious and interested, that's a good thing, ultimately. But it does also perpetuate the kind of ideal image. That is pervasive. The ideal image doesn't really tell you what it's like to be there, what it's like to experience that. Often the ideal image, it doesn't really have a sense of occupation. It doesn't have the messiness that everyday life has. It doesn't have the imperfection that you know, we really ultimately end up designing for. And so I think in some ways it kind of, it puts design on this sort of high level that is somehow, you know, perfect and untouchable. And in reality, that's not what it is. But that's also the same way in every architecture publication. There's professors here that design museums as houses. And so, I mean, isn't that kind of what we're striving for in the profession? That is one of the challenges within our profession is that we are somehow afraid to show what spaces actually look like. In reality, I'm as guilty of that as the next person. We all want to get our work published. We all want it to have some visibility. It's like putting on your best outfit when you go out. You want it to, to sort of have that image. I know when I started writing my book, I wanted to move away from that as much as possible. And it was hard because most of the images that are out there that have been commissioned by professional photographers all follow that same method. You know, I would go online and look for images that are out in the world that people had taken, that I could get a sense of what it looks like when people are in the space. What does it look like when there's a concert happening? What is that kind of lived experience like? And that's hard to find. I mean, I had to often go to just people's individual photographs if I wanted to include that. There's one really great example that has stood out in my mind related to that is I worked for a firm called Johnson Naylor in London. And they had created a marketing suite that they photographed professionally, but they set it up as if someone was actually living in the apartment that they had designed. You know, the bed is messy. There's like stuff all over the counter. There's the kitchen towel. You know, there's all that kind of stuff that's evidence of people having been there. And they photographed it. Those images have always stood out in my mind. And I recently, with their permission, showed them to a room full of designers and asked, you know, how many of you would submit these to a design competition? And not a single person said that they would do that. So I think it's our profession 
And it's us and it's our sense of perfection that's kind of perpetuating that. Real quickly, before we dive too far into your career here, can you kind of take us back to where you grew up, what your parents did, the economics of the household, and out of all the things you could have done in life, why the heck architecture? I grew up in a very remote area on 40 acres in the middle of nowhere in East Texas. Design and architecture was the furthest thing from my mind. I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would pursue a career to be honest, I didn't even know that that was an option. But looking back, I can definitely tell that I was interested in space. I think a lot of I think a lot of people growing up are interested in space. We inherently have this desire to create spaces. You know, we build clubhouses. We make our own tents out of sheets. You know, we do these sort of things when no one's telling us to do them. We do them out of our own curiosity and sense of play. Looking back, I realized that I did the same thing in a pretty extreme way. So I, together with my babysitter at eight years old, we designed and built a fort together in the middle of woods, which we kept secret for several weeks until we completed it. But looking back, I found some pictures not long ago and I was really impressed. I was impressed about a couple of things. As an eight-year-old, had figured out how to construct something from the materials that were around us. So Yopan has this sort of flexibility to it. So we were able to create a frame out of more rigid trees and then use Yopan to kind of weave in and out to make the walls of the structure. So from a construction standpoint, I thought that was pretty fascinating. But then in looking at the pictures, the other thing that really stood out to me was I had sort of brought things with me and put them in the space. Like there was a bench so you could sit down. There was a shelf. The shelf, you could hang things on. Like I had my purse hanging on it, which I think is really funny. You know, why would you need a purse in the middle of nowhere? Um, Yeah, at at eight years old, um, out in the middle of the woods. You know, it had like battery operated lamp and, and it made me realize that there's creating space and then there's occupying space. Those two things should really go hand in hand. I think it's interesting because you also went to University of Oregon for your master's degree, master's of architecture. I think it's interesting. Eugene is at the time one of the top ranked architecture schools, but there's also no buildings in Eugene. It's a small <laughs> college town, what, 60, maybe 90,000 people? I don't know. Two hours south of Portland. And I think there's something interesting about, I guess, one, how do you study architecture when you have no buildings to look at in the immediate surroundings? And also, I, I think when you were just talking there, it, it kind of struck me. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Northern California as well. I think there's a certain amount of, you use play is a good word, but Thing. You can't do that in a city. You can't go out and build a fort. So I just, how do those two experiences, I guess, play into your design thinking? I studied architecture at Texas A&M in College Station, which, you know, also doesn't have any iconic architecture necessarily to look at. You know, most things are, are chains and just like any other Texas city that you might find. I didn't even, when I look back and think about it, it's sort of funny. I didn't even really know what I was studying until I was a couple of years into it. I just gravitated toward the most creative classes and the things that appealed to me most. So I started out as a freshman and I, I kind of did a taster of all the different things that the university had to offer. So I might have a class in the School of Architecture and then a biomedical science class. And it became very clear to me that that was not my path. <laughs> Uh, that I really wanted to follow something more creative. And I think a lot of a lot of students enter just with that hunch. They don't really 
they don't know what that means. All those students are much smarter these days. But I think, you know, a lot of folks who haven't been perhaps um, exposed to that at a younger age know that they have, there's something in them that they want to pursue something a little bit more imaginative or creative in some way, but they don't quite know what that is. And so that was certainly me. You know, a couple of years in, I was like, oh, I'm designing buildings. Like, I didn't really know that that's what I had signed up for. I think in my mind, I was so green to it that not having architecture around me was something that I had grown up with. I didn't know that was even perhaps an issue with education. And then as I moved from College Station to Eugene, it was quite a culture shock, moving from obviously a very conservative place to a place that was unlike anything I'd ever seen or experienced before. That was not my world. That is not how I grew up. And I think in some ways that was more influential and probably a better education than going somewhere that had great buildings to look at because it made me examine who I was. Putting yourself, there's, there's something about putting yourself in an environment that you don't relate to at all that makes you really learn about yourself and makes you really acknowledge and observe and think about what other people are doing around you and sort of what makes, what makes them tick. And you start to see the contrast and it makes you start questioning. You question what other people are doing, but you also question yourself. You know, why is it that I automatically assume this? Or why do I, why do I believe this? Why do I have a particular value set? And so I think that that was probably way more important than having a building by a famous architect to go into and see. Well, after you finish school, I think it's really interesting. You know, you didn't go and work for an architecture firm. You moved to Germany and you worked for Daimler Chrysler. I'm very curious. Out of all the firms you could have went to, I mean, I'm sure you had offers. You pick a car company to go work for Yeah, I mean, it was something that was responding to things that were happening personally in my life. I had completed my first year of graduate school. I was really questioning myself and questioning whether that was the right place for me and if this was the right career path for me. And then I also was following a boy. So that, you know, many people do many things because they're they're following a boy. So because of personal reasons, decided to move to Germany for a year. And, you know, I was looking for a way to continue my design education and and to do some sort of internship. Uh, Moving to Stuttgart, one of the biggest industries, obviously, is the automobile industry. And so I was able to get a job at Daimler Chrysler in their corporate identity design department. At the time, I was very interested in the idea of kind of branded environments. That sounds very kind of old hat today. But at that time, it was really sort of an ethos over the moment, really trying to understand that brands have personalities, that they have a certain DNA that can all become a part of a spirit, part of a place, part of a product in some way. And so I was really curious to see how a car company, like a brand like Mercedes-Benz, how that happens. And I remember when I was speaking to the director who was helping me find the right place. It was sort of like, okay, well, we can put you in the corporate identity unit or we can put you in the car design, kind of designing car interiors. And I remember like really debating back and forth because they both sounded really appealing. I chose the corporate identity side, but part of me really kind of thinks, what would it have been like if I had if I had chosen the other? Like would it have, you know, set me on a whole different trajectory or not, but I chose the thing that was most in alignment with, you know, my interest at the time. So that's really kind of how that came about. I took language classes when I first got there, kind of very intense language courses, 
you know, multiple hours a day, every day, week after week. And, you know, I didn't speak a word of German. I'd only heard German spoken on the phone. I'd never, I'd never even been out of the country. So, you know. It's not the most romantic of languages. No, it isn't. It's not the language of love. You know, it doesn't, you know, make your heart warm or anything. But I, you know, I packed up my things and sort of a naive, had no idea what to expect spirit, just moved across across the ocean. You know, I didn't do a study abroad program when I was in school. I didn't have the opportunity in any way as part of my graduate education. And so I just sort of, it was my own opportunity to go and, and do this myself. It was even more of a culture shock than, than moving from, from College Station to Eugene, Oregon. It was moving you know, from Eugene, Oregon to a whole other country and culture that I had very little exposure to up to that point. And I also, I'm not gifted in language in any way. You know, I was horrible in my Spanish classes. I it was not something that growing up in the middle of Texas that had a real opportunity to explore learning to speak other languages. You know, that was, I remember being sort of reassured like, oh, well, there'll be other people who are from the U.S. or there'll be other people who will speak English. And I remember showing up to the class and coming back and saying, no, like there is no one else from the U.S. <laughs> There's only like one or two people who speak broken English and the language of instruction is in German. And I thought, how am I ever supposed to learn German when everyone's speaking German and I don't even know what they're saying? So that was a very intense experience in my life, one that has sort of imprinted on who I am and speaks to how resilient you can be, especially at a young age. So when I started at Daimler Chrysler, my German was very uh, basic and I could understand a few things. I certainly couldn't speak about design. You know, you're already interning, so you kind of feel like a junior person anyway. And then when you don't quite have a voice, when you can't quite even express yourself the way you would like to, felt like a real challenge. And they weren't the most open to speaking English with me. So it was sort of a tough love situation. And another thing that I thought was really something I hadn't expected was they have a different keyboard. And then, you know, well, okay, well, what software do they use? And it opened it up and it's like, oh, well, they're using Illustrator with a CAD plugin. And, you know, I had never, you know, that wasn't part of my software experience at the time. And, and then I realized like, well, it's all in German. Like all of the, you know, all the drop down menus, every command, it's all in German. So here I am in, a, in an environment that I don't know, in an area that's sort of, you know, tangential to what I've learned in a country that I'm not familiar with, with people who like insist I speak German, which I'm not very good at, and a keyboard I can't seem to type on, and a, you know, software package that's, you know, I don't understand what I'm doing, let alone how to even figure out what the commands are. It was like quite a, just jump in the in the deep end and see how you do. Well, as you're sitting here highlighting all your qualifications, um, <laughs> <laughs> How many, you know, I'm sure you know, a large company like that, they probably receive hundreds of applications a day. What do you think it was about what you were doing at the time that really caught their eye and said, oh, we want Tammy? I think that they were, um, they were happy to have someone coming with a design experience from the U.S. who they didn't necessarily want me speaking English so much in the office, but they were really happy because they had an English speaking client that they could put me on that particular project. 
So in some ways, having someone who had a solid design background, graduate level education, who spoke English fluently, who could help navigate some of the some of the projects they were working on was a big advantage for them. And I think that people come to those sorts of areas from all different types of design. So there were illustrators, there were product designers, there were exhibition designers, there were lots of different people working in that office. So, you know, it was interesting to see how people might be trained in one particular area and then you come together and those skills kind of intermingle to to create something interesting. Well, after Germany, you went and you worked in London for four years. So you've you've lived a variety of different places, and we've touched on this already, but how do you think, seeing the different cultures and the different design processes in different countries, how do you think that's influenced your design process and how you kind of view design? You know, we talked a little bit about this in that as you move from place to place, you begin to understand different cultures, you begin to see the nuance, you know, even when it's another English-speaking country that were still very different and even, you know, little phrases, you know, might mean one thing to them and something different to you or, you know, pronunciations of things. You think it's it's sort of funny and silly, but when you're trying to do a job and you're trying to be professional, some of those things can be embarrassing or a little frustrating. Or you can not understand the instructions as clearly as you should on what you're supposed to be doing. I think that it just helps you really reflect on yourself it forces you to learn who you are, but it also forces you to really pay attention to other people around you. You start to become kind of hyper aware of your environment, hyper aware of other people. And I think that in some ways that that makes you a better designer and it helps you realize that everyone's different than you. So I think if you grow up in a small town, you're not exposed to quite as many different things that you have to get out and see the world. You have to get out and talk to people who have different perspectives and different points of view and have different upbringings and different sets of values. I think that makes you a much better designer. I also think that working for my my very first job and then the subsequent job that I worked in London, I kind of consider those four years as an extension of my graduate education. Some people go on to, to get a PhD or do something else. And for me, I felt like I learned so much in those years that it was so formative for me that it really did feel like the next step in my education and then kind of graduated and moved back to Texas in some way. So for me, it was kind of like a completion of a kind of educational cycle. Well, we're here in Austin, Texas now at the University of Texas, and Austin itself is kind of going through an identity crisis, I think. 150 people a day they say are moving here McConaughey has deemed himself merchant of culture for the entire city of Austin so from a branding aspect I guess you could approach this when you look at a place like Austin how do you design in this environment without enacting the wrong type of change well I think Austin is growing up right when when I first moved here there weren't any of the large architecture and design firms here really there were some some regional firms that had a lot of influence There was one interior design, interior architecture firm that comes to mind that was a fairly prominent sort of regional player. But design in Austin was fairly simple. I felt like as a designer moving here, you know, I had had the the opportunity to work for luxury brands on really significant hotel projects and very high-end types of design. And then moving here, 
thinking, okay, well, how does that translate? Certainly kind of understanding the brand values or kind of understanding what makes a client tick, all of those things are still relevant. It doesn't matter what kind of design you're working in. But I found that I had to be, I felt like I had to be like really scrappy as a designer at that point in time, because the clients and the city in general weren't quite as you know, it was fairly simple in terms of design and what people were looking for and kind of the level of education or perhaps a level of interest that people had in design. And that has changed completely. We now have almost every, you know, major architecture and design firm represented here, even if they just have two or three people and they're scoping out a, a new office location, it's most likely going to be in Austin. The world has changed. You go to restaurants and hotels and they are on par with the best examples that you would see anywhere else in the world. So I think that interest has changed. The clientele have changed. There's certainly bigger budgets and, you know, there's still the kind of young, scrappy startup businesses, but there are much more established clients and companies here. So I think that it has really changed the design scene in Austin, and certainly the skyline as well. I've talked a lot about this with more technical firms, the Zahas and that sort of thing. But And there's also this talk I just saw with Tom Main where he's, I produced 100 building forms in 10 seconds through this program. Do you foresee a time where the architect is no longer a necessity because the computer? Yeah, I mean... That's a, that's a really fascinating question and something that I'm a board member on the American Society of Interior Designers and, you know, getting together with other design professionals from across the country and realizing that the landscape of design and architecture is changing and it's changing so much faster than any of us can possibly keep up. And so what does that mean for practice, whether you're a small or large firm? What does that mean for education? What does that mean for people who want to have a lifelong career in an area that's constantly evolving? You know, how do you ever keep up? When we think about education, how can we embed all of that new interest and sort of new skill set that needs to be there so that design and architecture students can learn to embrace and incorporate and work with technology? And I don't mean just in like learning how to 3D print, like not as it, not technology as it being part of your process, but actually part of the output. So technology, as we look forward, it will ultimately be embedded in the surfaces around us, walls, floors, ceilings. It will be embedded within the furnishings, the objects within our spaces. It will be the thing that starts to create the atmosphere, the kind of ambiance of where we, where we live. If that's happening somewhere else and designers and architects are still creating the, the physical structure of it, how do those things come together? And that's something I'm really curious and interested about because I think that the way our professions are set up, we have such rigid accreditation requirements. We have all of these boxes that we have to tick. So how do we expand that to be even more all-encompassing? Or how do we find ways to work in a more interdisciplinary way so that we can work with people who are developing those technologies. So there's kind of that part of technology, but there is what you're talking about in the sense of you can have however many iterations of something. And I think that in some ways that makes us reconsider our value and what it is that we do. Again, this goes back to we're not honoring the human enough. So where does the human come into that process? And I think if we can start to answer that question, 
then it's not about taking scope away from us. It could be that it takes the things away from us that, yes, technology can do and perhaps do better. But then that could give us more time to focus on the human experience, kind of incorporating more of a personal touch and and really thinking about what it's like to occupy those spaces and to help make those decisions that are more human-centered. So we're no longer sitting there kind of churning out however many sets of drawings and options. We can then be on the other side, really kind of looking at what's going to be the best fit for people. What's your proudest moment in architecture? It's hard to say there's one proud moment because there's, there's sort of small moments where, like I had a student this semester say at the end of class, that was really fun. And I'd never had anyone say that after a class before. And so I thought, oh, wow, like I'm finally coming into my own as an educator and able to make education engaging and, and exciting and help students feel like they're actually you know learning something and they're excited about it. And then there's larger moments like I recently received the Nancy Vincent McClellan Award. There was something about that that really touched me, in part because academia can be a very solitary experience. You go in every day, meet with students, kind of pour your heart and soul into it, try to give them the best of who you are and what the profession has to offer and what you know and help guide them. And you're as much of a life counselor as you are you know, trying to teach them how to do technical drawings or whatever it is. And then, and then they go away and you don't, you know, sometimes you keep in touch, you, you hear from them, maybe when they want to go to graduate school or they, you know, need a, need a recommendation, but otherwise they go on and they live their life and they become a designer or they move into other areas. And you often don't know what your impact is. You don't know who you've touched and in what way you've influenced them. In receiving that award, it helped me realize that what I go in and do every day, which we all do, we just, we go in, we do our job, we give it our all. And sometimes you go home not knowing if it matters sometimes. And so having an acknowledgement that, yeah, it does matter and it is impactful. Even if you don't feel it, it's worth getting up every day and giving giving that to the future of design and going in and helping and working closely with students and really considering what it means to advance a profession or advance a particular area of design and to be to be all in. So I think it's really great to be recognized for that. It gives you the encouragement to keep going. What's your biggest setback in architecture and how did you use it to kind of motivate your career? I was I was laid off from my my dream job. When I moved to London, I didn't have a job. I, like many of our students, had, you know, my portfolio that I spent probably far too much time trying to make it perfect. And I had a list of firms that I had researched or gotten from the top whatever list and a cover letter and, you know, all the things that you have when you get out of school and think, okay, here we go. And I probably sent out 30, 40 letters and like, you know, sample portfolios and those sorts of things. And immediately, I think almost like the next day, like the, the Royal Mail service in the UK is like really fast. I feel like it wasn't even like 48 hours that I had my first rejection letter Ultimately, out of all of those inquiries, I ended up with, I think, like four or five interviews. And the very last one was with a firm called Virgilian Stone, which is another thing that's interesting about uh, the world of interior design is we're less likely to have these sort of rock star 
architecture firms. And so Virgilian Stone wasn't, as a student, a firm that was on my radar. But once I realized what they were doing, I thought, this is exactly where I want to be. And I was so eager to get the job. And I think it was probably just my like, sheer, here I am, I'm, you know, I'm going to harass you until I get this job attitude that it was sort of like, fine, just hire her, you know, and, and I came in as a very green, very naive I loved the job. It was probably one of the most transformative job experiences I've ever had. And I was there for a year and a half or so. And I think that you easily start to kind of plateau when you first start working. So I think in some ways it's kind of good to keep moving on a little bit. But the landscape was changing. They needed to cut back. Like a lot of small firms, you kind of ebb and flow. And so sort of first in, last out. No, last in, first out. And I, among several others, was laid off from that job. And I felt... Did you, did you see it coming? No, I didn't see it coming at all. It was, a, it was an absolute shock. You know, I felt like I had learned so much, but perhaps I had still kind of internalized what I had learned. It really taught me to make sure that as my skill sets are developing, that I can make it more evident to the people around me what I'm learning and how I'm improving. And I don't necessarily know entirely all of the reasons of why they chose the people that they chose in that particular round of layoffs, but it certainly impacted me because it's, it's early in your career. It's sort of something you consider to be a dream come true, and it's a reality check. Then I came to the realization, gosh, like I moved around the world to be here in a city that's really hard to live in, that's extremely expensive. I was here for work. You know, I was in London for the, that kind of opportunity, and there it was pulled out from underneath my feet. That was a very humbling experience, and you go through all of the emotions. Then you realize, you know, I have learned a lot, and I am really good at what I do, and I do have a great portfolio, and now I have all this great work experience. Then it was having a choice of where I wanted to work after that. You realize that life goes on and practice goes on and everything is a learning experience and you just keep moving forward. So that was a very humbling experience and not something that I share very often, but I think it's good for everyone that's listening that it has experienced a similar setback or perhaps for students who are kind of looking for that perfect opportunity that the world changes and you change with it and that's okay. Final question, what advice would you have for the young architect or interior designer that wants to go on and have the type of career that Tammy Glass has had? I think that when I started learning, well, when I realized I was in architecture school and I started really learning the craft of creating spaces, creating environments, it didn't fully click to me that we were designing for people. I mean, of course we were, but it didn't really settle in until much later in my career. And so I think that if I were able to go back and do it over again, or if I were able to speak, you know, speaking to people who are, who are starting out their careers to really begin to see the full impact of what you do, that it's not just about a detail or is this finish glossy or matte or whatever it is, like those things are all really, really important, but it's also really important that we're designing for people. And those people often are very different than who we are as designers. And so really finding ways that you can hone your own ability to be more sensitive to the human experience, how you can become more embedded in the process, find techniques to learn more about 
who the client is and why a particular solution is a great fit for them or isn't a great fit for them. That was not something that was really on my radar early on as a younger designer, a more junior designer. And so I think that that would be something that I'd really encourage students to do. In design education, we put a lot of emphasis on the overall form, the aesthetic, the beauty, and the poetics of what we do, and that's all really important. But to me, what's more important is how that impacts people and keeping a broader perspective of what it is that we're doing. So sometimes what we're doing is extremely powerful and impactful, and sometimes it's just a backdrop. So how can we find meaning in what we do? And it's not just through creating a beautiful thing. We're creating an experience for people. Well, Tammy, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. And uh, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to an episode of Designed, an architecture podcast. We'd appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to us, rate us, and leave us a comment. Have a wonderful day.